If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Nurse Wellness Podcast, hosted by Wendy Garvin Mayo, focuses on the power of stress management and how it's foundational to being your best, doing your best, and giving your best. There's a wonderful episode that you should check out called Letting Go, where Wendy Garvin Mayo shares six strategies to release control and manage stress effectively. Check out Nurse Wellness Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. I basically never tell anyone that they can't eat anything. And yes, ghee has a lot of calories, but any fat you use has a certain number of calories per gram. That doesn't change between fats, right? Although there are benefits of olive oil, but there's a flavor that is imparted with ghee that is unparalleled, frankly. So my approach is always like moderation and not replacement, because I think that if you are just replacing the ghee with another fat that's not necessarily culturally appropriate. Hi, you're listening to Healthcare for Humans podcast the podcast dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. Welcome to part two of this series on the Indian community. We'll be talking with Dr. Avantika Waring today, who's an endocrinologist and a diabetic specialist and the current Chief Medical Officer of 9AM Health, a virtual diabetes clinic. In our previous episode, in part one of this series, we talked with Dr. Amy Bott, and we reviewed the history of the Indian community's immigration to Washington State. Today, we'll drill down on the topics that's important to know to care for the Indian community in a more granular level. We specifically focus on dietary recommendations for a large portion of this podcast. And I'll say, sometimes it's easier to talk about this than others. If you remember, when we had the conversation with the Ethiopian community with Rahel Schwartz, we talked about a community's traditional food, but we focused on the changes that have been made to the food after people arrived in America. For example, in the Ethiopian community, because teff was so expensive, people are substituting white flour for teff. So in that episode, we talked about how you could replace white flour with whole wheat flour or bulgur for a more nutritious alternative. And that kind of conversation seemed culturally appropriate and respectful. But if you also remember, in previous episodes, we've talked about rice. And rice in the setting of how it is so bad for you. Because it was often of replacement food for people's traditional food. It became an easy substitute for so many people because of its availability and price. And it's often led to higher levels of diabetes in many communities. And the conclusion from these conversations was, which is what I learned in school too, is that rice is bad for you. Don't eat so much rice. In this podcast, the goal has always been to not advise anybody to avoid their traditional food because food is so much more than nutrition. It's your connection to family and your culture. It's what your mom made growing up. It's what you do when you get together for the holidays. And rice is my traditional food as an Indian. Yes, there's a way to approach the conversation around rice when you talk about it. Decreasing the quantity of rice, not having so much rice with every meal, 
But I wanted to contend with the idea that rice is bad for you by itself. And to really address how do you counsel Indian patients about nutrition when they're living with diabetes and rice is their traditional food. I'm not sure if we came up with a straightforward answer to this question, but I'm hoping that you learn as much as I did with this conversation. In addition to this today, we'll be talking about other aspects of dietary nutrition, including other protein sources, which includes lentils. We also talk about not focusing on specific components of food, but highlighting what people are eating and rebalancing rather than replacing certain foods. Then we talk about the extremely uncertain signs of glycemic index when it comes to rice. We end the episode talking about beliefs around health. Specifically, we talk about what it means to make decisions involving the whole family, the importance of assertiveness when giving health recommendations, which is sometimes in contrast to the shared decision-making model that we use in healthcare. And lastly, the stigma around mental health and how to approach that conversation. Here's Dr. Avantika Wary. Welcome to the show, Avantika. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Uh, Let's start by just talking about you. Tell me about yourself. So I am an endocrinologist. My name is Avantika Waring. I'm originally from the East Coast. I grew up in New Jersey where there are a lot of Indian immigrants and many generations of Indian immigrants. But interestingly, I grew up in a town where there were essentially none. So a very unique experience, I think, compared to a lot of other people I met in college and later on who were South Asian families but came from New Jersey, but other parts of New Jersey where they had a larger community. So I, I always think that has really shaped sort of my relationship with my culture to a certain extent. Anyway, so I went to some of my training and education on the East Coast and then ended up meeting my husband, who is not Indian. He's white and Jewish and from California. And so we moved to the West Coast and I have been out here since now in Seattle since 2016. I was the director of the diabetes program at Kaiser for the state of Washington for our region. And then actually just in May of this year, I left to take a new role as a chief medical officer at a company called 9AM Health, which is end-to-end virtual diabetes clinic for people living with type 2 diabetes. And it's just been a really interesting transition for me using a lot of the same kind of care management skills and population health skills and translating them to a more virtual format. So... I also have three kids. We were talking about that. I'm sure that'll come up. They're 12, 9, and 6. And yeah, we have a lot of fun. So let's get started. I was talking to you earlier about this, but in a previous episode, which was published right before this, we talked to Dr. Bot about just the history of immigration of the South Asian community, specifically the Indian community to Washington. But we didn't actually go into diet and nutrition and some of the nuances of culture like holidays. So I think let's cover that first. And then we'll get into the nuances of taking care of people from India and how to manage their health. So food, where should we start on to go? I feel like I'm so familiar with this topic. And at the same time, I knew so little because I was researching about this. There are 28 states in India and eight union territories. And what we think of as Indian food in America is mostly Punjabi food. Like when you go to a restaurant, you look at chicken tikka masala, and that's what people think is Indian food. But that's such a small sliver of actual Indian food. Tell me, what does Indian food mean to you? Yeah, so I am Punjabi. The dishes that you describe, I think they really are the ones that resonate most with people seeking out Indian food. 
but they're actually not the things we ate at home. And a lot of the things that we ate at home are very hard to find. I'd say now I'm seeing more restaurants where they're bringing out, they'll call it like a homestyle food or a street food or something. And then I find the dishes that my mom actually used to make for us, right? Like Langenbertha, which is so delicious, so healthy, actually very easy to make, but not something you would see often. So Indian food for me is dal, it's lentils. That is the thing that we ate most with every Indian meal, we had lentils. I think the important thing to think about is everybody has a different experience. So their like go-to Indian food is going to be something totally different. And I think for our family, a lot of that had to do with time, right? Like my mom worked. And so what she was able to make for us might be different than what she ate growing up as well. There's like this Americanization of the Indian food that isn't really making it taste like American food, but it just pairs down like what you're actually eating. And then the availability of the ingredients too, like where we grew up, we didn't have an Indian store. We'd have to go an hour away to get the groceries. So there's just a lot of ad-libbing. So we would have, let's remember, this is the funniest one. I think they are yogurt with kick cereal in it. Do you know what kick cereal is? I think I remember it. A little sweet, but they're just tiny little corn puff balls. And there is some Indian crunchy thing that you put in bay to make it like a raitha, but we didn't have that crunchy thing available anywhere nearby. So my mom like literally would buy boxes of kick cereal and put it in our yogurt. And so when I first had it at a place that wasn't my home and it wasn't a little bit sweet, I was like, this is kind of weird. It's not sweet. And my mom was like, that's because it's not kick cereal. It's like the actual thing, which I don't even know the name of because we ate it so rarely. But like, this is made wrong. <laughs> You've got the wrong thing yeah, exactly. up here. <laughs> and so I think, what does it mean to me? Like, gosh, it means all things to all people. And I think we could have a really long conversation about the foods that we've eaten growing up. And probably we've eaten some of the same things, but they were called something differently and prepared in completely different ways. Yeah, I was always impressed. I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, but it is part of the immigrant experience as well as you're trying to blend what you grew up with to what you're learning in America and I was always impressed with how my mom did that. Yeah. Making a masala turkey. It's not yeah. like we ever ate a turkey in yeah. India, but that was the Thanksgiving dish. Yeah. And I always thought that's what people ate at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Like <laughs> so when I actually ate a turkey, I'm like, wow, it's so bland. Like, I'm just like, well, yeah. Let's set the context a little bit more about just Indian food. I think people probably have a general sense of what it is. And I was looking up some stats, and part of the reason people do you think that Indian food is really flavorful, although it's still pared down in Indian restaurants, is a lot of the dishes have seven or eight ingredients with a lot of spices that often don't overlap with each other compared to some American dishes. So that it doesn't seem as bland because there's just a lot going on in each dish. And in the US, I was saying people typically think of Punjabi dishes as Indian dishes, which are mainly tomato, onion-based, and very creamy. But each region, which I'll put up in the website, has a different kind of Indian food. I'll bring in my experience. I grew up in Chennai, Tamil Nadu, and dosa and idlis. And dosa is really hard to find. There's this one place that makes really good dosa called Ahar. I really want to be sponsored by them, so I'm saying this out loud here. <laughs> but you have to drive to Issaquah to get there. But really, like, it's not as common, right? Most people don't know what dosa is. And with Tamil Nadu and Southern Indian food, there's more tamarind and lime juice. So it's a little tangier than the creamy base that people think of. But breaking down the different kinds of Indian food, we'll just do it in like a medical context, right? There, So the carbs typically are rice. There's 
course, also breads, chapatis, people may know, paratas, people know that. But also dosas, which I just mentioned, which is like a pancake made out of both flour and also gram. So there's some protein component. The second is protein, which is chicken and mutton often, but also legumes like lentils. And we'll do a deeper dive on that. And then the fat, which is different kinds of vegetable oil, often sesame oil, peanut oil, but also coconut oil and ghee, which is clarified butter. Okay, let's do a deeper dive into rice. Yes. Avantika, this is a problem. I've had a lot of episodes so far. Yeah. And the thing is, rice has often coined as so bad for people because it takes over other people's native food. But I don't think people understand there's so many different kinds of rice. They not only taste different, but they also have a different reaction in your body. How would you talk about rice? So, you know, in prepping, I was like, okay, let me look up about the different kinds of rice. Because I think there are thoughts and theories that I have also held as true. But to know whether or not it is actually true, I really wanted to take another look. And what I really found is that there's a ton of different answers. And the internet basically will feed you whatever it is that you're looking for, you know. So the glycemic index, we should probably just dig into that a little bit further. So again, the glycemic index is a scale that goes, some average numbers might be like in the 40s or 50s or 60s, just to give people an idea of what kind of number to expect. But it basically tells you how quickly and how dramatically a certain food that's got carbohydrate in it will turn into sugar and cause your blood sugars to rise. And that's not, has nothing to do with diabetes. And this happens to all of us, right? If we all wore a sensor and we ate a bagel, we would see the sugar would go up to some extent. So there's probably hundreds or more types of rices and there are grain sizes. There's long grain, there's short grain, there's glutinous or sticky rice. And then there's a whole like brown rice, white rice, which has to do with whether it's polished and they remove the outer husk. Kind of similar probably to any grain. What I found on various websites, which I would say were all reputable, right? They were relating to a healthcare system or a hospital system. The ranges would go from 55 to 96. So 55 is actually pretty low glycemic index for a starch food. 96 is high. And I feel like that doesn't really tell us a whole lot. And so I don't know, like, what was your take when you've looked into this too? Is it, can we give advice about rice? I'm not sure that I feel like I can. And I'll just say that even though there is some association between the glutinous sticky versions being higher and the long grain versions being lower, it's still not consistent. So the brown rice and the white rice, I saw different websites that actually white rice had a lower glycemic index than certain brown rices. Then I went down this rabbit hole where apparently there's other components of the rice like amylase and amylopectin and the content of those different components changed the glycemic index of the rice. And what I ended up, I just shut all the windows down and I was like, I think we're not going to have a great answer for people to say rice is good, rice is bad, eat this rice. So, Yeah, and maybe the point is that it's more complicated than what we've been taught. We were taught that rice is horrible for you. Don't eat rice. And that's really hard for somebody who's lived all their life with rice. And that's what ho means to them, to stop eating it completely. The background of rice is complicated. And I don't even know if this is true. As you said, there's so many conflicting resources. But there's this general sense that long grain is better than short grain. Because short grain is more sticky. And there's like arborio rice, which you make for risotto, Mm -hmm. compared to basmati rice, which is the rice that many Indians use. So there's a difference between long grain and short grain. And then in the long grain itself, that brown rice, wild rice, and basmati rice are maybe better for you than other kinds of rice. 
that is like a strong maybe. I think the other thing I would just point out is one might be slightly better than another, but at the end of the day, they're all of starch. And so, I, you know, my approach, I've never told a patient to switch the type of rice they were eating. That's not a thing I've ever done. Maybe I should. I choose to help them balance what the rice component of their meal is because you don't actually have a lot of control over what you're getting either. So these different types of long grain rice, there's all these different components. Like no one's able to go into the store and say how much amylase is in this bag of rice. And then it had the cooking time impacts it as well. And whether you cooled it and reheated it is another thing you can go into. So at the end of the day, if it's one component of your multi-component dinner, I just don't know how much that one component really matters. I think what probably matters more is thinking about the other things that are going on your plate. And if this rice is part of your diet, then why would anybody change that? It feels like home. It's also you need it to sop up the curry. One thing that just occurred to me too is like growing up, we did eat a lot of rice, but it's actually a lot more rice than would have traditionally been eaten, I think, in our Punjabi household, because traditionally we would have chapatis, which are, for anyone who's not familiar, it's like a flatbread made with very unprocessed whole wheat, but it's very labor intensive. You make the dough and you have to roll one at a time. And traditionally, if you are a woman in the house, you are standing and making chapatis and not sitting with your family and eating. And so we would have chapatis sometimes, but not all that often. And I think like for us and perhaps for many South Asian families who are now living in the States where a lot of women are working or people are balancing in their families, not to gender it, but who's making the food and, and who's busy in the evening, it's actually quite complicated to have that traditional form of starch with your meal. And putting in rice in the rice cooker is much simpler. My dad often brings this up, which I don't know if it's true, but just a hypothesis. I'm from a small village in India, technically. It's like a thousand people. Mm. It's called Tamrankote, which is actually close to Chennai. And I swear, like, nothing's changed there in a thousand years. <laughs> but part of what we're realizing, even in that village, is the prevalence of diabetes is really increasing by a lot compared to before. And the hypothesis my dad was saying just from knowing the community was that people's activity level has really decreased a lot. So even if we control for the amount of rice they're eating, they're like out in the fields doing a lot of manual work and labor compared to now where they're often sitting and not moving at all. And that may have helped balance out some of the caloric intake. As you noted, like Maybe we don't need to focus on just the rice itself, but what else is going along with the meal and maybe even the activity level after you eat a high-carb meal. Or if you're not really that active, yeah. do you need that high-carb meal? that you're? Yeah, or do you need as many meals as you were normally eating? Yeah, exactly. And I want to highlight this, that Indians do fold, wrap, scoop, dip for food. Not just a fork and spoon. Mm -hmm. So we do need rice or chapati or something yeah. to eat all the rest of the food with. Yeah. So it's hard to read anything else without that main component. Okay, the second category is protein. I wanted to talk a little bit yeah. more about legumes. And I actually had to look this up because I see it used interchangeably. Legumes, pulses, and lentils. So legumes is the entire plant with the fruits and sprouts. And pulses is the dry seeds found within some legume pods, like dry beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils. And I want to really focus on lentils because I think the overall knowledge of all the different varieties of lentils that we said before is limited here in America. And there's like hundreds of varieties. How would you talk about lentils? Yeah, they are a source of protein. They have carbohydrates. Basically, any food that comes from a plant has carbohydrates, right? So unavoidable. But I really think of them as a protein and I encourage 
people to consume them. They're super healthy. They've got a ton of fiber. They have a very low glycemic index. I live in the diabetes space. And so most of my nutrition counseling has that in mind. And what we're trained on and what you hear in the media is so much of this like low carb, keto, paleo, like all these diets that reduce the amount of carbohydrates. But, you know, when you go out into practice and if you're working with, especially I think a South Asian population where people tend to be less meat focused, not necessarily vegetarian, but some versions of vegetarian and they only eat meat with certain meals of the day. I actually remember stumbling and being like, okay, so tell me what you can eat that's got protein in it because I would say egg. Oh, we don't eat eggs. There's dairy. So there's yogurt, but it's not so simple, right? You can't just say like, well, have your salmon and broccoli. The, The imagery of a Western healthy diet doesn't really fit with eating. I wouldn't even call them preferences, but eating requirements of many South Asians. And so I think there's two components to that. I would say that lentils are high in protein and then the fiber content and the protein makes the glycemic index low because it delays the conversion or the absorption of the carbohydrates. So yes, they're carbs. If you look at the label, there's going to be 45, 60 grams of carbs in a serving of whatever kind of lentil or chickpea or thing that you're eating. But it's not going to hit your blood sugar in the same way that a muffin that had the same content would, or rice, actually, that has the same content would. It's going to be slower. So I definitely encourage people to use those in their diet. And to your point, when you go to a Western, even a fancy grocery store here, you'll see a fair variety of lentils, but they're very expensive and they come in small pouches for the most part. And so it is a little bit different if you're able to get to an Indian store. Gosh, you can buy like a huge bag of any kind of lentil you want and it's really affordable. And then you just have to figure out how to cook it. That's like the next step. Yeah, yeah. And I want to say that this gets probably overwhelming for some people who've never thought about lentils. And maybe what I want to drive home is that, one, it's important to speak the language of your patients. Language, not just meaning the language like Hindi, Tamil, whatever language you speak, but actually what foods they're eating. And it's a whole different feeling if you start talking about lentils and dal, rather than start out by saying, do you eat salmon or could you eat more salmon? And then two, just having a general idea of what these things are. So you at least can ask the right questions to your patients. And you mentioned you ate a lot of dal growing up. Yeah, I love dal. My kids love dal, actually. It's like the most impressive thing I've done as a parent. (laughs) (laughs) It is a huge accomplishment, right? (laughs) Yeah. So there's different kinds of lentils. There's whole and then there's split and de-husked. So if they're split or de-husked, they're easier to cook with because they don't have that coating. And that's often what dolls made out of. Oftentimes, I think you see lentils in American stores. They're the whole ones, not the split ones. But just remembering that doll is an integral part of the diet and maybe some place we can get people to focus more on rather than the rice. Yeah. Like not just talking about reducing rice, but thinking about how much doll are you eating? Could you rebalance that portion in your plate yeah. towards one rather than other? Yeah. Well, I was just thinking too about like what we're talking about when you go to a restaurant and the dishes that you get, it tends to be like this tomato gravy that is perfect to be dumped on top of a pile of white rice. But that's not how we ate at home. We had dal and then we always had some kind of vegetable, like a sabzi. And then we'd have the carbohydrate was more of an aside, but we didn't need it to soak up the volumes of creamy chicken tikka gravy. 
But you go and you eat that and you associate that with Indian food and it tastes very good because when you put fat and sugar and salt in something, it's going to be really good no matter what it, <laughs> yeah. what it is. Yeah. And that's a note in restaurants overall because it doesn't necessarily represent a home-cooked meal. So I like to even talk about how much are you eating out versus getting a home-cooked meal. And that's a huge difference. And part of the limitation is just people's time and energy given the life we live these days. Okay. For fats, I think one component I want to focus on is ghee. It's not used often, but both ghee and coconut oil actually are widely used in India. I actually don't know historically how much they were used. It's clearly used a lot now, especially in some of the richer desserts and sweets. Tell me about your experience with gulab jamun. I love gulab jamun. And I'm not really a sweet person. Every culture has their celebratory donut replacement, and it's like the Indian yeah, yeah. donut replacement. So there are these, well, I don't even know what they're made of. It's a batter, and you fry these balls, and they're dark and delicious on the outside and almost creamy and light on the inside. And then you soak them in a straight up, it's like a sugar syrup. So it is very, very sweet. It's really good. And probably most of us eat it. I don't know. Should be like once a year on a holiday or celebration. But if you go out to an Indian restaurant and you get dessert, like this is what you might be getting. They're basically donuts soaked in sugar syrup. <laughs> That's what they are. Yeah. Very high glycemic oh index. God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to put that out there. Yeah. I think for me, what's salient about talking about ghee, which is the clarified butter and coconut oil, is our patients have a lot of sources of information. It could be from family back home or the internet, as you said. But there's always things circulating about how good things are. Yeah. Like coconut oil has blank benefits, can regrow your hair, can <laughs> help you live longer. So sometimes actually we're just one source of information. So if I say ghee, which is a clarified butter, has a lot of calories, and these gulab jamuns have a high glycemic index, you really need to have a good rapport for the patient for them to choose you over all these other sources of information. They're yeah. Buying really interesting. I think I wonder if maybe my approach is pretty different because I basically never tell anyone that they can't eat anything. That's not a guidance that I would ever give. And yes, ghee has a lot of calories, but any fat you use has a certain number of calories per gram or whatever. And that doesn't change between fats, right? So if my patient was cooking with ghee, I wouldn't necessarily find a lot of value in telling them to replace the ghee with olive oil, although there are benefits of olive oil, but there's a flavor that is imparted with ghee that is unparalleled, frankly. So my approach is always like moderation and not replacement, because I think that if you are just replacing the ghee with another fat that's not necessarily culturally appropriate, you don't want the food to taste bad. And I don't want to deviate so far from even the process of making ghee is like, it's such a cool thing, right? I don't know. I think this is maybe not the direction you're going, but it would not be something that I would necessarily have a conversation about. If I told my patient to change their ghee to oil, they'll probably walk out and be like, I thought my doctor was Indian, but he's telling me to do crazy things to make a lot of with olive oil. Place my rice with quinoa or something. Yeah, exactly. I know. Yeah. And I think there's one other thing I'd probably just touch upon here because we're not specifically talking about diabetes, but we kind of are. South Asians have a very different trajectory of their type 2 diabetes disease than we see in a lot of other cultures. And what we see is that there's this first phase, which we call like insulin resistance, right? So that's where you can try reverse diabetes by cutting things out. But that works for some people. But South Asians, it's been demonstrating the data. They tend to progress more quickly to actually needing insulin and not being able to manage with 
dietary interventions. And so sometimes I feel like when I try those other approaches, it's not successful. And then it leaves the patient sort of feeling like they've failed somehow and they really haven't failed. It's just the way that our bodies are all imperfect and that's just the way that their body may be imperfect. So that's part of the reason I've tried to really get away from saying change this or eliminate this because frankly, for a lot of my patients, it's actually not going to work. It's not going to get them off all their meds, like maybe doing a keto diet would for somebody else. And I want to normalize that, right? I want them to realize that this is a part of life we manage through it. Of course, there are eating less of anything usually will help, right? So reducing the fat, reducing the portion of the carbohydrate, yes, adding more lentils and less rice, those kind of balancing compromises can be made. But I haven't had a lot of conversations where I've said, well, replace your coconut oil and butter with another kind of fat because you do need fat. It's healthy in some quantities and you need it to prepare your food. So the takeaway point is really maybe we don't need to focus on specific components other than maybe in your initial conversation, just getting an idea of what people are eating and is there really room for changing the portions or the quantity or rebalancing a plate, but really taking away food or replacing it not sure how high yield it is unless it's like I'm drinking a liter of Coca-Cola, yeah. right? Like something so obvious. Yeah. Most of the things that need to be replaced are not actually parts of the traditional South Asian diet. Those things are like the liter of Coca-Cola. There are, I think, some culturally specific foods that probably should be removed, but they're more like modern foods. Like, does your family eat tea with biscuits? There's a lot of these packaged biscuits yeah. that come in. Yeah. So biscuits, meaning they're cookies. Co- they're cookies. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cookie with another name. But yeah, so they're cookies. And then there's also like these salty, crunchy snacks that I know our family would. What do you call it there? Numkeen, which just means salty thing. Yeah, we call it murka. Yeah. Yeah. They're just fried. Like chips. Yeah. I guess. Some form of it. There are some things that are more like, they're not traditional foods. They have a really specific place. You have tea with your visitors and then you want to serve them something. So we have cookies or something like that. And I definitely have encouraged people to cut back on that kind of thing. Because to me, those are cookies and chips. You can cut it out. And they're packaged. My general rule for all of my patients is the less things that come in packages that you consume, the better off you're going to be. It's pretty hard to eat very unhealthy things if you really truly prepare them yourself at all from scratch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The other part of diet is that many people are not as meat focused. So either they're completely vegetarian, which in Indian community means no eggs as well. We'll be intentional about this. So there's a cultural background to this of Hindu culture of ahimsa, which is nonviolence to other forms of animals. But, you know, at some point, people don't know why they're doing it. It's what their families did. And that's what they continue doing. And there's a lot of other reasons people become vegetarians. But the point is that a lot of people are vegetarians. So I think you brought into the context of talking about meat is often not productive for them if you're trying to change their diet. But I think the other perspective that I wanted to bring out is that acknowledging people can be vegetarian to make sure that you're cognizant of could there be any deficiencies or lack of something in their diet given They may have had a complete diet from their home country when they were Mm -hmm. lacto-vegetarian, but they came to America and they didn't have any time and they're trying to juggle a job and cooking food. So their diet has changed completely. They're still lacto-vegetarian, but they're eating not as diverse of foods they were eating. So potentially they could become deficient in certain 
vitamins. I'm not sure if that ever comes to your counseling. But I found a pediatrics in review article because I think this comes especially relevant for kids if you're going to raise them as vegetarian. But the main things that I found was making sure you get adequate protein because sometimes that can be difficult. Again, not if you are doing a traditional diet with lentils, but also other micronutrients like vitamin B12, iron, and vitamin D. But there's also some risk of deficiency of calcium, omega-3, vitamin A, and selenium. I'll put this in the show notes. But does it ever come into your counseling at all? Yeah. Or do you think about it, especially with diabetes and metformin? Metformin, which is, a, again, it's very common. We use medication for type 2 diabetes. is associated with lower B12 levels. So especially if you have people who follow a vegan diet, typically we'll do some screening for B12 if someone's on metformin for a longer period of time anyway. So it will get caught that way. People nowadays, I think for most of the other nutrients, we all eat enriched products from the grocery store. So packaged breads and cereal and all these other things that have a lot of these other vitamins in them. I think iron is the one that I do see a deficiency in. And I don't even know that that's specific to my vegetarian patients, but it just happens a lot. I would say like in people who are menstruating age throughout that portion of their life, we'll see it honestly vegetarian or not. Honestly, I don't see children. So maybe I don't have quite the same concern about the protein deficiency and how that might affect growth. But I don't worry that much about protein because honestly, my mom always used to say this to us growing up. There's a whole world of people who don't eat meat and are mostly fine. So I think this obsession with having a certain amount of like some protein piece on your plate is, is a bit of a Western thing. Because there's protein in tons of vegetables that we eat. There's protein in lentils. There's protein in grains. You pick a good grain, there's going to be protein in it. And dairy products. I know in the northern part of India, where I'm from, people do consume a lot of dairy. There's lassi, so like our yogurt drinks, and we put a lot of milk in the tea. We eat paneer, which is like a homemade farmer's cheese. And so I don't worry too much about the lack of protein or frankly, even calcium. I think at least my family members I've seen and the way we grew up, we probably drink and consume more milk than a lot, a lot of other people. So I think in that sense, it is quite rich in some of those nutrients. But again, you're right. If you are coming in and you're feeding your kids noodles with butter because they're vegetarian and they're not getting a lot of other stuff, then certainly you want to screen for those potential things that they might be missing. Yeah. And maybe just be cognizant of it. Yeah. yeah and it's not like a recommendation to screen everybody yeah. or anybody. That's more like a question used, like you said, what do you eat rather than leading with what you should eat? Really getting that baseline of understanding of what somebody does eat is really helpful because I think often we're likely to be surprised, right? We don't actually know what people are eating. We assume we know, but until you ask them, yeah. there's, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Let's transition to culture. Again, we'll say this, India is very diverse. And what culture means to you is probably very different for me. We probably would be better off trying to be really intentional about the diversity of India and making sure we allow people to express their diversity while understanding the common themes around what it means to be Indian. And that could mean also a lot of different. Yeah. So for religions, we mentioned in the first episode of this series on India, there's Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism. Hinduism is one of the major religions in India. I think it's certainly been true for me growing up in a Hindu household 
where compared to other religions, sometimes Hinduism kind of forms itself into a way of life or a philosophy. It's just like Hinduism is around you. It incorporates a lot of diversity and culture and rituals that actually Hinduism in Southern India looks different from Hinduism in Northern India. But I wanted to start out with that to talk about holidays because people may have a vague sense of holidays. But I think it's important to know a little bit more about them because it's probably important to the people that you're saying or taking care of. The famous holidays probably people have heard of is Holi and Diwali. Do you celebrate those? Those are the ones we celebrate, yeah. For Diwali specifically, it's like the festival of light and people say it's a victory of light over darkness. But Holi and Diwali, people hear about a lot Mm -hmm. going to the diversity of Indian cultures. When I grew up, in India and Tamil Nadu, we celebrate a pongal. Navantika, do you know what pongal is? I do not know what pongal is, no. Tell me. <laughs> this is funny because I think for me, Indian meant the things that I experienced growing up in Tamil Nadu and actually wasn't exposed to a lot of other Indian communities. Yeah. And it was funny, in the first episode, it came out that I studied abroad in India <laughs> to learn Hindi. I studied abroad in a country that I came from because India was really different than I had imagined to be or knew it to be growing up. And Pongal is actually one of the major holidays we celebrated in Tamil Nadu, where we thank the sun, mother nature, and animals for the harvest. It's typically celebrated in January. But we make a special dish called Pongal, which is rice boiled in milk. And we use jaggery, which is like raw cane sugar. It's one of the biggest holidays in Tamil Nadu, where people celebrate with food, but also new clothes. Mm-hmm. Which is a common thing, actually, for a lot of the holidays is you celebrate with new clothes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that brings us together, right? Like food and clothes. Food and clothes, yeah. It's always a good (laughs) choice for an Indian holiday. Yeah, and I think the Indian in America has its own stuff. But like you'll find someone who grew up somewhere totally different. I was born in New Jersey to parents from India. There'll be a connection. There'll be some stuff that just happened with both of us, even though thousands of miles apart, completely different friend group and community. When we finally did have a little bit of an Indian community where I grew up, we'd have these community center like dances. So Dani Ras, it's like a sort of a traditional dance where you have these sticks that are like about 12 inches long and you have two of them and you do a, it's like line dancing actually. You hit the sticks against your partner's sticks and it makes a beautiful noise and it's really fun. It's also very easy to learn so kids can do it. People who grew up in New Jersey around all Caucasian peers can learn it very quickly too, like myself. So it's a really fun event. Do you still do it? I haven't done it in years, but I talked about going a couple of years ago, but then now it's hard because my, now my parents have actually just moved here recently. So I'm hoping we can do some more of these things because I think without their motivation, it is pretty hard to get your act together and get your whole family out to go socialize with people that you wouldn't normally socialize with. That's It takes an extra step. But I am finding as I get older that it is more important because I want my kids to, they probably do already know as much as I did growing up, but I wanted to go even further. Yeah, yeah. This is also a common theme, but I think especially salient with retaining community and trying to retain that cultural identity. So let's move into belief around health. We talked about diabetes a bit. How do you incorporate some of the importance of family structures and involving the family in decision-making on how you counsel and take care of patients? So I think the family involvement for a standard visit with someone who's not from a South Asian background, I might just assume that I'm only communicating the information to the patient themselves, but a lot of times we'll see my patients who are 
from South Asia and particularly from Indian families, they come with another family member to the visit. It's very common. And actually, with the email messaging, sometimes another family member will be doing most of the email messaging back and forth with me. And I think when I started out seeing patients, I felt like uncomfortable with that because you were trained in medical school and residency that you have that permission. You can only communicate with the patient themselves. It's private health information. And it's very stress that you're really supposed to focus on your individual patient. But it doesn't work for some of these other cases. And I don't know if you've found the same thing. It just tends to be more productive, actually. So maybe maybe I'll say like, oh, I, I'm happy to communicate with you as so-and-so's spouse or daughter. A lot of times my patients will have a child who is also a physician who will want to talk on the phone about what's going on. And I actually totally appreciate that because I know how like in our culture and our family and family friends, it works. People, they find if there's a doctor in the community, they trust that person to be like the go-between to give advice so I think being able to respectfully and flexibly engage with other parts of, I guess you would call it like the family care team is really important, I think, in building trust with the patient. And they'll feel better about it if you also spoke to their friend's nephew, who's a, I don't know, nephrologist in Albuquerque, right? It might seem totally random, but they trust that person to give good advice. And if that person wants to talk to me, I'm totally happy to engage in that as well. So I think just being really open to the community that's caring for the patient, not just the patient themselves, is really helpful. And then I think just with decision-making, and I think this is something you maybe wanted to touch upon as well, I found there is not, I wouldn't call it deference, but a lot of trust and respect for the medical community and medical providers. So sometimes saying like, well, do you want to try this or do you want to try this? Some studies say this is okay, but you can also try this because we do, I think we're moving more in medicine to letting patients have more choice and decision-making, which is good. It's not a bad thing. But I've definitely had conversations with South Asian patients where they're like, you're the doctor. What do you think I should do? And I think it comes back to that sense, especially because I am also a South Asian doctor. They probably are like, oh, it could be that I could be auntie's niece who's here in the visit with them. So it's almost a slightly different relationship. And if I engage even on talking about the foods by using some traditional words to refer to things, I think it creates like it's a different doctor-patient relationship than I might have with some of my other patients. Yeah. And I'll go with the first point that you made, that it's a common phenomenon that another doctor is involved that they know personally, because there's a lot of Indian doctors. <laughs> we kind of talked about the reasons for why that is with Dr. Bot, But still, this is going to be a situation you're going to be in. And it's best to incorporate that into your care plan rather than feeling like challenged if somebody's going to be like questioning you because everybody just wants the best for this family member they care about and want to understand. (laughs) And also sometimes that other doctor who's called to talk to you is also my generation. So we'll see this scenario where it's like an older patient and their friend from whatever Indian community, and then they have a son or daughter who lives somewhere else. And so when I've talked to those other doctors, it's it doesn't, it's not like contentious or stressful. They're like, yeah, my auntie told me to call you because other auntie wanted advice. And we're doing the thing of being the good younger generation of the community to connect and help support our elders, which is another really important concept in Indian communities and culture. Maybe we should define aunties, that it's just not, 
meaning you're related. Aunties yeah. are every, everybody. Everybody's an auntie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody that's Indian and older than you yes. and you kind of know. <laughs> yes. And actually, you know, I try and tell my kids to call it even non-Indian older people, auntie and uncle. And the other day, my 12-year-old was like, but they're not Indian. Why am I calling them auntie? And I'm like... <laughs> It doesn't hurt. It's still nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then the second point that you made about, I would say, respect to authority. I don't want the takeaway message to be, we need to go back to this paternalistic way of care that people are used to. They want to be told what to do. But there is value in assertiveness. I think people really doubt you when you're really uncertain. And sometimes, I think because even my training and how I've been trained here in America Admitting uncertainty is good because you don't want to be so definitive when you don't know. But when you're vocalizing uncertainty, I think it can come off in certain ways that you don't know what you're doing. So the patient may lose trust in you. It's like, that person actually didn't know. He said I could do this or that. <laughs> and I went to him to tell me what to do. So I think just finding a way to be warm, respectful, and assertive. And there's probably like a art to that. Yeah. And I think also this is true for all patients. Patients will sometimes say, okay, well, I see those two options. So what do you think I should do? And this is not just Indian patients. I've asked my doctor this because sometimes I find this shared decision making really stressful. I'm like, I make decisions all day in my normal life. I'm here and I just want you to tell me what to do. So responding to that and saying, okay, well, asking me what I think you should do. And this is what I'd like to try. And if it doesn't work, we can always change course. But I think having a little bit more... Like you said, a little bit of directiveness is not always a bad thing. So Yeah, exactly. Okay, a few other things about beliefs around health and how to navigate that. One is, I struggle with this because I think it's like a common immigrant experience too, about stigma around mental health. It's probably underdiagnosed. Yeah. And I also would bring up like some of the standardized instruments that don't do justice in screening because a lot of those instruments like PHQ, Right, They are tested on English-speaking patients and American culture. And interpreting that is really different if you're Indian, especially if you don't speak English. Yeah. So I don't know how accurate that is. Do you find that's true? Definitely. I think part of this, like you said, is some of it is a bit of an immigrant experience. I can't speak to what the conception of mental health is in India now because I've not been there for a long time. I don't live there. Hopefully things are open and changing but there is a bit of this, and I think I grew up thinking this as well. There are so many things that are bothersome in life, and you should just work hard. And these are minor problems, and it's not a big deal. And I think that sort of grit and toughness that as immigrants and kids of immigrants, we try and show up with every day, it doesn't do service to the fact that there may actually be things. It's not whether it's a big problem or a little problem. If it's a problem for you, it's still a problem. And it's probably being very big about it because I also don't think I have very good skills and being able to discuss this very well, partially because of just like the way I was raised. And if my parents listen to this, it's not because of anything they did wrong. So it's just, yeah, there's a language. Like my husband actually is a psychiatrist and his mom is a therapist. And so the language that happens in that side of my family is very different than the language that we use in our family. And my parents are extremely caring, would always want all of their family and friends to take the best care of themselves. But we often don't have the words. So I think that's how I would say it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if this is universally true. Just reflecting back, I think there was also a sense that we made it to America and life's hard, but life was harder and life is still very hard for people back home in many ways. So we should be grateful. And then that undermines 
things that you're experiencing. Sometimes you want to name depression, you want to get that diagnosis to really go down this clinical pathway and algorithmic pathway that we're used to. But sometimes you don't need to, like even acknowledging that things are difficult without trying to put a name to it. I wonder too, have you seen a lot of somatic concerns that seem to be linked back? I I've definitely have had a handful of especially older Indian patients who there's just a lot of physical symptoms. There's one after the next and we really work hard to try and figure them out. And it seems tied to mood. And actually in a couple of those scenarios, what's been really helpful is talking to the patient's child because they will say like, well, I think that they are depressed or I think they're very anxious, but they don't think that they think they're having a problem with their kidney or with their hips or something like that. And that's really a hard one because I never want to make light of someone's physical concerns. I always want to take that seriously, but it's helpful to think about whether that's the language that they're using to describe how they're feeling. That maybe is not like I have depression or I have depression with anxiety, like we might now see on TikTok or something that is very easy to say these words of the younger generation, which is great, but it's not how they're able to express their internal feelings. Yeah. And I've thought about this a lot too, because it is a common phenomenon of somatization of mental health complaints, specifically depression, anxiety. And there's one way to approach this. You're trying to fight to change the perspective of the patient, get them to acknowledge it's depression, not like what they're feeling. And there's another way to reconsider that we in Western medicine have really separated the mind and body so much that we say depression, we have this sense of like mood. But really, I mean, depression is often a physical symptom too, like heaviness, right? I think we forget that actually a lot of the manifestation of depression is physical. And if we're able to, rather than try to change the perspective and just meet them in that bodily manifestation, if their family says, yeah, I think they're depressed, and then you try to figure out why, is it like social isolation? Did something happen? So then reframing, yeah, you probably don't feel great. Your body feels bad because of this. That's really helpful. That's a great perspective, actually. You're right, because it's really meeting them where they're at and fixing the problem that they want fixed, not the problem that we think needs to be fixed. Okay. Anything else about values that you feel is important that you've come across? What's that movie that came out about closed awareness? This idea that you hide the seriousness of the illness for the patient who's experienced it so they don't suffer mentally. I think in Western medicine and our current way of healthcare, we want to be direct and honest. But I think people's interpretation of some of that is like increasing the suffering when people are already suffering in some way. Yeah, I think it loops back to me, at least in some way, to the idea that the family is very involved. Right. So I wouldn't necessarily always think about it as causing suffering for the patient and wanting to protect them, but it's more like that it's a discussion that they maybe want to have actually with their family and not necessarily just with me. Right. So having the more frank part of the discussion, only if this is okay with the patient and their family, and you've had that discussion beforehand, not just going in and making up your own decisions about who wants to hear what, but talking to the family members. And a lot of times it's the patient's child who's an adult child. Having this conversation with them about the prognosis or what might need to change or what your really strong recommendation is, and then they are actually feel more confident and able to have that conversation with the patient themselves and have it really well absorbed, I think. I've not been in a situation with an Indian patient where there was something that I was told not to communicate to the patient in some way, but I have definitely communicated in a different way via family members or a, a group conversation where I tell so-and-so's daughter or son 
And then they explain it in a way that maybe is not the way I would have said it to the patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's good. Okay, two more questions. The next question is, what have you learned with all your experience providing clinical care to the Indian community? I think that the two things that I would say have been most salient are things I actually mentioned already. Number one, this idea of trying to control what people eat to make them get better. I have really come a long way on that. This is my growth, right? Because I've just found it's not productive. I believe that I have made my patients feel judged to a certain extent, right? And I lost the ability to connect with them when I said, why don't you try doing this instead? And it's much more productive to just say, okay, what are your things that you absolutely cannot give up? Tell me what's important to you. So maybe it's, I have to have a samosa with my chai because my grandson comes over that time of day and that's the time we spend together, right? So why would I want to mess that up? That's just not, it's not a productive approach. So I feel you look back at your 10 years ago, 15 years ago self, and you're like, oh, I can't believe I did that. But that's how we learn, you know? So I think having a more, and not just with my Indian patients, but in general, a more like a softer approach when it comes to nutrition and diet guidance, because some of these things are like far more deeply entrenched than just the macronutrients of what you're eating. It's a habit with insulin. I had a very specific memory of a South Asian patient where he had like three breakfasts, but this was his routine. He did this, he went for a walk, he had another breakfast. We just, we dosed his insulin for every single one of those tiny meals. And that's what he needed to be happy. And we were able to take good care of his body. So that's the ultimate outcome is not the easiest thing for me. It's what's best for the patient. That's what we want. And then I think being really open to this idea of family decision-making, because honestly, when you're new in practice or really busy, it can be annoying when you have to call like five other people before you make a decision or you're getting emails from so-and-so who works at Harvard. They all work at Harvard. They're like, oh, this is like so-and-so who works at Harvard and they want to talk to you and feeling like really insecure. Like, well, they work at Harvard and well, what if I'm doing the wrong thing? But I think just like understanding where that's coming from because my grandmother aged and my parents are a good help, but just reflecting on how I want to support them and how they sometimes look to me to support them, it makes it so much more relatable. Then I'm like, okay, I will talk to your family member in Harvard, no problem. They will probably teach me things that I don't know. And then we've created a sense of trust because the patient feels that it's not just me giving them the advice, but it's like a community of people who care about them who are giving them advice on something. Yeah. There's a sense of humility in that when you approach it that yeah. way. Yeah. Okay. And then last question, a personal question. Have you actually had an experience with the healthcare system? You're like, that's something to aspire to, especially in how they've taken care of your family member. You're the auntie in some other relationship that they're calling for advice. When have you seen another doctor approach it in a way that you wanted to mimic or aspire to? Yeah, actually, my grandmother passed away a little over a year ago, and she's in her 90s. But she had, so this is another kind of common thing, is when you're an Indian doctor, people want you to set them up with doctors that you know. So when I lived in California, my grandmother, I referred her to one of my partners in my practice, who is a wonderful person. I actually haven't spoken with her in a while. She's not Indian, but she just was so patient because my grandmother was a person who also had a lot of physical complaints that I think were somewhat related to isolation and depression. She lost her husband fairly young and was moved around with my parents, but didn't really settle into another Indian community. But this physician of hers, her name is Talia Gracer. We love her. She was so patient in just taking everything seriously, but not 
over-medicalizing it, if that makes sense. So I never felt, my parents never felt that it was a bother to bring my grandma in to say, okay, now she's complaining that her left pinky is hurting. And, you know, as, as a family member, you're sort of like, okay, it's probably not a big deal, but, but she would take it very seriously, listen, had like so much compassion, but didn't send her for 5,000 tests either. And so I think just that ability to be patient when people communicate things in a different way is so valuable and something that I really aspire to want to be able to do more and more, not just in my practice, but also just with my family members and people older than me in our community in general. Because I think one of the things is that you see is as I get older, as we get older, you just think, well, that's going to be me. And now it seems like it could be me and I can see it. So just remembering that compassion is going to be very much appreciated and it will come back to you, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we get paid to listen in many ways. And yeah. sometimes I think we fall short and continue to grow in that. But even more, being a good listener to your family. Now that yeah. you have to keep reminding yeah. yourself over. I know. I know. It's important. Thank you, Avantika. I think this was a great episode. We learned a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks again for joining me, Raj Sundar, in another episode of the Healthcare for Humans podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, remember to check out our website, healthcareforhumans.org, for show notes and a full transcript of the episode. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants' past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duemish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duemish. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Nurse Wellness Podcast, hosted by Wendy Garvin Mayo, focuses on the power of stress management and how it's foundational to being your best, doing your best, and giving your best. There's a wonderful episode that you should check out called Letting Go, where Wendy Garvin-Mayo shares six strategies to release control and manage stress effectively. Check out Nurse Wellness Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.